Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to Monroe Live podcast. And uh, I'm Kevin Hardy, and I'll be hosting uh, this particular uh, podcast. I'm a design consultant here at Monroe & Associates. And for those of you that are new and may not be familiar with Monroe, uh, we're an engineering consulting firm that does um, reverse engineering, teardown benchmarking, costing, um, and really we kind of blend a lot of these fusion, uh, these these uh, services together uh, for various clients as well. So, and if you're in Michigan uh, this fall, we'll be at the Automotive and Interiors uh, and Advanced uh, ADAS, you know, Advanced Driver Assistance Systems and Automotive and Vehicle Technology Expo. So uh, today I'm with Alanis King. Uh, she's a contributor editor for Road and Track, a host of Donut Media's F1 podcast, co-author for Racing with Rich Energy, um, a rogue sponsor and how it took Formula One for a ride. And previously worked for um, Schlopnik and Business Insider. So, Alanis, thank you very much for joining us, and uh, it's, I'm looking forward to the conversation. So, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, so, I guess like to, to start off because um, I mean I'm familiar with you. Uh, like Tertiary, I've been pretty busy the last few years, so I don't keep up with a lot of things. You know, like automotive media, ironically. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, if you could just maybe kind of like start off with maybe how you got into cars, because ironically in the industry. Um, there's a lot of people that aren't into cars that that work in it, right? So that's so true. So I actually got into motorsports first. So in 2009, I was 13 years old. I was going to turn 14 that year, and we were mid recession, right? Everything is bad, sure. and no one has any money. So my mom got free tickets to a NASCAR race from her job. So she comes home one day and she says, I have free tickets to a NASCAR race in Dallas. And I said, that sounds horrible. <laughs> Why would I want to do that? And she said, well, it's the recession and we don't have any money. So if you want to do anything interesting, we're going to go to NASCAR. And I said, <laughs> that doesn't sound interesting, but I guess I'll go. I went, it was the most incredible thing I'd ever seen. It was the facility felt larger than life. You go up to a NASCAR track for the first time and it is a sporting facility with a one to two and a half, three mile track on the inside of it. Like this is not normal, right? It's huge. You get up in the stands, you can basically see the whole world from your seat. When the cars go by, there are 40 cars, they shake everything, they're so loud. It was the most incredible thing I'd ever seen. I didn't know who Dale Earnhardt Sr. was. I didn't know anything. Um, and I just decided this is what I'm going to do with my life. I never missed another NASCAR race after that. And then I eventually got into the car industry too. So that's kind of how it happened. Okay. I mean, I've never, I've been to a few races, like very uh -huh. young, a Bush with Boy Scouts, went to Bush mm -hmm. um, actually in Nazareth before they tore that. That, uh, mm -hmm, that track mm -hmm. down. So it was, it's tiny, fast, and scary, and dangerous. So I think eventually mm -hmm. people complain about the noise, uh, even though you bought a house around a racetrack. But um, and people they, they do that all the time, and it's yeah. really unfortunate. Um, but that's that's pretty interesting. And then from like the, I guess like the automotive media aspect, um, that's mm -hmm. I would argue a very interesting landscape um, in general. Especially, I feel like over the last five years specifically has changed a lot. And yes. you know, if you wouldn't mind kind of like how you got into that. Yeah, actually I was in college and I went to the University of Texas and one of my professors actually worked with Patrick George, who's the editor in chief of Jalopnik for a okay. long time. And I was my second year of college, I was 19 years old and Jalopnik needed a weekend editor. So my professor said, hey Patrick, how about this kid who's in my class? And Patrick was like, okay. And I just started writing for Jalopnik. When I started writing for Jalopnik when I was 19, I only knew motorsports. I did not know the car industry. So I had to learn the car industry on the job. And the weekend editor was a really interesting job because you had to write everything, edit everything, publish everything on social media, do all of the moderating. It was an everything sure. job, right? And so that was a I got thrown into basically. I did that all throughout college. I graduated college two years later. So for two and a half years, I was the weekend editor of Jalopnik. And then I went full-time at Jalopnik and I stayed there for a couple of years before I went to Business Insider. And now I have a new job coming soon that I haven't announced yet, but it's really exciting. Awesome. Awesome. Mm -hmm. And I mean, uh, I'm trying to think. I feel like for people in my, I guess, age group um, with, within the auto industry, kind of grew up in many ways with like Jalopnik and aspects of that. Um, I think 
in, in some regard, if, if there's any impact that I've had at Monroe, um, it would be randomly running into Dave Tracy off-roading, mm -hmm. you know, with a mutual friend from his from Chrysler. And that kind of kicked off an article here, you know, about mm -hmm. Monroe and what we did, which was interesting because uh, I remember distinctly at the time, a lot of people thought what we were doing here was like illegal. <laughs> despite the fact <laughs> that, yeah, like, you know, like you shouldn't be allowed to do this. It seems unscrupulous. Mm -hmm. um, despite the fact that, uh, like I would argue, you know, if you, the first like 20 you know of any vehicle that's purchased aside from like inter internal employee um like orderings and things of that nature is just the competitors buying your product right you mm -hmm. know like uh and you can see them like we're across the street from chrysler and you're like look over and like oh look what they've got and it's just sitting uh -huh. in lot e or whatever you know and uh and they all kind of have their whole competitive fleets and depending on how interested they are in a vehicle they might buy you know more than one or anything like that but everyone is doing this in, in some way shape or form so mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. i thought that was something that was interesting from our end when you look other people kind of looking inside of i guess our corner if you will of the industry but um yeah definitely and i mean i worked with david for a long time mm -hmm. and he was wonderful and he knows a lot about the automotive industry. And so if I ever had questions about wrenching on a car, I would ask David. If he had ever had questions about grammar or the style guide at Jalopnik, David would ask me. So we were, <laughs> we very much mutually helped each other sure. while we were there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we, we speak often in PowerPoints and bullet points and you know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of PowerPoint engineering that happens and conveying things in that format versus long format and writing. Um, mm -hmm. Oh, yes. Um, and writing certainly is an interesting format. A lot of people think it's easy. And sometimes I forget how difficult it actually is mm -hmm. because, you know, writing isn't something where you can just go on a stage and show, look at this thing I wrote. Everybody's like, okay, great. It's words. Whereas if you go on stage and sing or something, people will go, wow, you're so talented. But Writing is one of those things where you have to actually remind yourself that it takes a lot of talent sure. because you'll see people try to do what you do and you'll go, oh yeah, it's taken me a lot of years to be able to do this. And other people do struggle with it. But on the surface, it can be hard to remember how much talent it takes. Yeah. I mean, I feel like even with just word selection, you know, especially yes. if you're, the shorter the article is, maybe you have to be even more conscious, like, um, you know, any products we make here we get when we go through like a review you kind of get hung up on it's like what do you actually mean when you say this and you're like well i'm trying to say this you're like i don't know if you're really conveying that or mm -hmm. i get it but i don't think uh, you know like the customer or the general audience whoever might see this slide someone in finance or something like that will get this let's check mm -hmm. <laughs> so or uh, fact checking is also a thing with words so when i wrote my book mm -hmm. with my co-author elizabeth blackstock our book is about a hundred thousand words and when you write a story, you fact check it as you go, but you also do separate fact checks. So our rule was everything we write is fact checked while we write it, but then we also each fact check it separately word by word. And so our rule was if it's just written, it's in a black font. If it's been fact checked once, it's in purple. And if it's been fact checked twice, it's in maroon. If you change any word at all, you revert the whole sentence back to black and it has to be redone. Okay. Because if you choose the wrong words, sometimes those words can have connotations that make something factually more murky than it should be. And you won't even notice it while you're writing. And so you have to go through and fix it because you don't want any legal liabilities. You also don't want to present any information that may be incorrect. Right. I mean, I... I don't know anything about writing a book. Mm -hmm. I've done like some white papers here. I've written some other papers for school and even on the, the army side of the house for various leadership courses, um, which are very different. Our, the army writing style is very upfront, bottom line upfront, very brief, mm -hmm. you know, C-spot mm -hmm. run. Um, so you kind of explain a little bit of it. Um, like I'm, I'm assuming it's like, it was kind of like a remote and very collaborative aspect with, you know, uh, like a, like a shared document and you kind of go through this. That is exactly what we did. So, Basically, we put down the chronology of the book because our book was in chronological order, pretty much chronological order. It had the little side quest in chapter three where we talk about other things that are mm -hmm. related to the topic, but it's in chronological order, basically. So we did our chronology and then each of us claimed about half of it. And I claimed some of the things that I knew better. She claimed some of the things she knew better. And then we wrote it out. And then we shared the documents with each other, broke it into chapters, and we edited each thing we wrote 
to make it sound not like one or the other. So even if she wrote something that was really good or I wrote something that was really good, we would chop words into it and chop sentence structures into it to where if you're reading the book, you can't really tell if I wrote it or if she wrote it because it's meant to be one cohesive voice. Right. Oh, that's mm-hmm. interesting. That's uh... mm-hmm. And we did it entirely remotely. We did it on the phone, on the computer. We would have like times where we would just log on and work in the Google Doc without being on the phone. Then we would have times when we were on the phone. We would edit on the phone. We would read the book out loud on the phone and edit as we went. When we got to the very end of it, we printed everything out, every single chapter, and did red pin edits on paper and then called each other and we went through each chapter with the red pin edits. It was intense. It was very, very, very intense. And just like, how long would you say that process took like overall? It took us from this, like when we started writing the book, it took us about three years to publish it. Um, And that includes all the the reporting, the fact checking, the information gathering, the editing, all of it took about three years. The actual editing process, once we got to the end, like the final edits process, probably five or six months where we were just going through the Google Docs, just constantly chopping stuff and constantly doing stuff in red pen and going back and forth. There was probably five or six months there where we just went back and forth. And I'm just kind of curious from like the editing perspective. Yeah. Would you say you cut like more technical content out or more story-based? Honestly, the only stuff we really found ourselves cutting because we had a lot of freedom with it. The only stuff we really found ourselves cutting was the stuff we couldn't fully corroborate. And there Mm. was a lot of interesting stuff in the book that we could not publish because either people had NDAs or like stuff we knew to be true but we didn't have the final documentation for, that was unfortunate, having to cut that part. But really, I mean, we were able to talk about the history of Formula One, talk about the technology on the cars and everything like that, because ultimately this book is a business story that happens within a sport. So I have to tell you what the sport is and what happens in the sport and the history of the sport, but it's a standalone story to where like, if you're watching a documentary about some sports scandal, you don't have to be a fan of that sport to watch it because the people presenting the documentary will tell you all the stuff you need to know. That was basically what we did. Gotcha. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And I, I haven't read it. <laughs> so, okay. um, I'm very no one ever has to no, read no, it. No, sure. Sure. I mean, it was interesting that when I went through and looked at it, I was like, Hmm. I mean, it's, it's just, I think, an interesting take of how you would follow something like kind of that unique, right? This this, yeah. this team that just starts up and then kind of mm-hmm. goes forward, if you will. Um, but I guess I'm just kind of curious from like a technology standpoint, you know, um, and just in general with the way the automotive industry is kind of going and, and shifting is a, you know, a major paradigm shift here. And And when I look at like what happens, you know, here in the production side of things and just when you see like major advances in technology, I feel like outside of like public sector or private sector financing of something to research it, a a war, unfortunately, or, you know, those push technology, you know, leaps and bounds forward, then you have racing, you know, and that's like, well, in all honesty, right, it's a huge capital undertaking to get some of these teams going and and moving forward. And uh, I'm just kind of curious how you basically, you know, whether for the research of the book and just you're following the sport in general, where you see like racing going with mm-hmm. respect to te- the technology in the future, I guess like in the immediate future um, and then farther from there. It's a very interesting question because you could argue that quite a few forms of motorsports are pretty technologically obsolete. Mm-hmm. In NASCAR, they ran a four-speed H-pattern sure. manual up until last year. And that to me is hilarious. The only other vehicle on sale in America with a four-speed at that time was a four-speed automatic in the Dodge Journey. Sure, like sure. that that was it. And that was technology from the 1980s. It was, you know, it was completely obsolete. The transmission, and I mean, they use pushrod V8s. Sure, pushrod V8s are super cool and have a long history, but they're not the future, right? That's that's not what's carrying right. us forward, you know? Um, And so I find that a lot of motorsports, you can test 
certain things sure. in a racing environment. And also you have series like Formula E, which do right. test newer technology like electric cars. But a lot of the, these existing motorsports like NASCAR, Formula One, IndyCar, stuff like that, it's really a lot of entertainment. And I think one driver named Parker Kligerman, I think he made this point once that made me more understand where we could probably see motorsport going. Mm. He said people used to ride horses. Sure. And they raced horses. People don't really ride horses as a commute anymore. Sure but they still race horses. So Parker's take on that was basically, sure, cars and cars that don't drive themselves and cars that are powered by gas may become obsolete, but will the entertainment they provide us become obsolete? That is something that we will answer in the future. Sure, sure. And even with like some of the, you know, the advances, like uh, mm -hmm. you know, Jordan had a Model 3 performance. And I think one of the the crying shames of it is it could drive itself because it's, you wouldn't want to, in all honesty, it was a fun car to drive. I mean, I don't, there's aspects, you know, like they, the EVs kind of feel a little soulless, you know, at times um, with respect to, you know, your more traditional vehicles, um, especially if you really push the boundary and have like, you know, manual steering, manual brakes, things of that nature. But, uh, you know, you have to like, their soul might be there. It might be a little quieter. You have to listen to them a little bit more, but, um, when I look at that, it's like it's kind of a shame it drives itself because I don't mm -hmm. really want it to. You know, it's nice, mm -hmm. I guess, if you were tired, but um, it's it's interesting. And I, and I would agree that you know, more than likely, we'll still see that. Like there's there's your racetracks, you have all those things, and and arguably the the impact that I would say motorsports has, even from like an emissions perspective, um, as fuels change and stuff like that, is probably relatively low and compared to like heavy industry and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But I mean, have you? I don't want to divert too early with respect to that, but do you, do you see like, what is like the conversation happening in motorsports with respect to like maybe maintaining some of these more conventional forms longer and maybe with alternative fuels or hybrids or things of that nature? You know, a lot of the things I see aren't necessarily about the cars themselves yet. Mm -hmm. So there has been some talk in NASCAR about some sort of hybridization of the car, uh, I don't know how soon that would happen. It would also be very, very mild hybrid. Sure. It is not going to be like an actual hardcore hybrid. It would be very mild. But I think a lot of racing series right now are less focusing on their products and their cars that they race and more focusing on some form of carbon neutrality. Like when we put out this many emissions, we're going to try to get those emissions back and we're going to lower our footprint. You see this happen with Formula One has talked about carbon neutrality, things like that, but also on a smaller scale with series like Extreme E. Extreme E is an electric SUV racing series and they go race in the remote parts of the world, basically the parts of the world that are affected by climate change. Instead of flying to these places, they take everything on a boat. <laughs> like, sure. you know, there are conversations about this, but I feel like those conversations are often less about the cars themselves and more about how people get places, sure. which is a very fair approach because I don't remember it super well, but I feel like Formula One did uh, an emissions report pretty recently where they talked about where their most, like most of their waste and emissions sure. came from. And I think most of it was travel to the tracks, not actually what happens on track. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because there's mm -hmm. it's always a nuanced conversation. You know, there's a mm -hmm. lot of layers to to any of this. Um, uh, from like we like to try and do like total accounted costs for various things here, but when you look at like the total roll up of everything, you know, you're talking for us in the costing world, it's you know from depending on how detailed we're going, but like you know, raw material all the way up, so to speak. And there's burden and layers of cost as as you kind of go through these these stages. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, whether it's like some of our like competitors or just people that do other type of costing services, the scope of what they, they look at, right, is very different at times. Yeah. And then, you know, there's always a question, at least on our end, like, I'd like to understand a little bit more about how you got that number, you know, and you're like, mm -hmm, fair enough, mm -hmm. you know, and then we, we walk through some of the aspects of that with them and they're like, okay, you know, and, uh, you know, based off your assumptions, I can, I can see why you've arrived at the, you know, the, the cost that you have. So, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's just interesting. I, I, 
I don't follow it closely, you know, on, a, on like the, on Sundays with my daughter, I'll watch like Australian vintage car racing, which is out of control. I don't know if you watch it. Love it's, that. It's, the, well, the commentation's amazing. And uh, <laughs> it's just interesting to see these cars that are worth a bit of money um, and are, you know, classics in their own right, just bending fenders and, you know, slamming into corners and crashing on some of the most technical tracks in the world, you know, like Bathurst and stuff like that. So classic car racing always terrifies me because I look at those cars and I, I'm like, oh, I watched some of those cars race and you just bend one of them. Yeah. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting. I mean, obviously they fix them, you know, you look and yeah. you see some of the same drivers, you know, year after year and, you know, same 69 boss Mustang, same, you know, mm-hmm. probably been rebuilt three or four times. Fortunately for some of those cars, they make a lot of reproduction parts and you can essentially stitch them back together almost indefinitely, realistically. Um, maybe some of the older, um, like Dodge products and, um, maybe even some like your, like your older AMC stuff. That's just, that's, what's actually wild to see is when you see like some Mm -hmm. javelins and other cars like that, um, like being fixed and race or wrist, I would say, being wrist. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, do you race? Like now, I know you started kind of in motorsports. You know, do you? I I do track days. Okay. I have done a couple of races myself, but often my days are just so full of actually sure. doing my day job. You know, and my day job is often reviewing cars, writing about them, and writing about motorsports events and interviewing people and things like that. And so. It is hard to fit that in. I try to do a few track days a year just so I can drive. And, you know, I feel like it is helpful to have an understanding of the racetracks you watch people drive and also of how to drive the cars yourself. Like it allows you to have conversations with racing drivers where you more understand what they're talking about and you're able to carry that conversation better. So I definitely do try to do that. I don't race as much as I would like to. Mm -hmm. I would love to race more. It's just, you know, you get done with the work week and you're like, I need a nap. Right. (laughs) Yeah. No, I feel you for sure. And honestly, it's, it's expensive, you know? Yes. Very. Depending, uh, you know, the weight and stuff like that of the car. Mm -hmm. It's the reason Miatas are, you know, popular, right? So there's a couple Mm -hmm. of us that rock them here, but, um, Mm -hmm. you know, some other cars, you can kind of go through two or three sets of front tires. But I, I, one time went into the shop to get tires and they're like, this is the third time we put front tires on your Mustang. I'm like, mm. you're like, you're still in the original sets of rears. I'm like, yep. You know, no. it's a heavy car. So it gets beat up uh, the turns. But. Yeah. We have a sim rig at home. Um, but mainly my husband uses it. I find that with the sim rig, cause he uses iRacing, racing and we have a mm-hmm. very nice sim rig. We have a triple monitor racing seat, sure. direct drive wheel. It's a very, very good sim rig. I find that, I'm okay with using it on ovals and driving ovals, but I don't necessarily like the sim rig on road courses. And I think I figured this out. I think it's because I have enough experience on the racetrack on road courses to where I'm looking for the feel in my seat, but not enough experience where if I'm a racing driver, I'm looking for my marks and not relying on my feel. So I rely on my feel because, you know, when I'm on track, that's what I rely on but I don't have enough experience to look for those marks and be able to be really technical about it. So I just find that when I do road courses on the sim rig, I get very, very thrown off. I can take turn one at Cirque of the Americas incredibly well in a real car. On iRacing, I miss it every time. Sure. I, I can't do it. It's just so deeply confusing for me because I'm looking for something that's not there. Yeah. I mean, I can... I could definitely see that for sure. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have a ton of experience. I've done, you know, a host of track days. We got Waterford, which is very close mm-hmm. to me, which is a nice small technical track. Um, and then Groton, which is very pretty if you've ever been out that way. But um, yeah, I mean, I play Forza and uh, and stuff like that. That's pretty much where I do a lot of it right mm-hmm. now, you know, um, with my daughter. I'll kind of sit her down. We'll try and steer. doesn't go well. Uh, but uh, we'll get there eventually. But it's... I love that. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's interesting. Um, I'm waiting. I think Forza Horizon or Forza 8 comes out soon. So we'll see. But um, it's, I guess it's kind of a nice bridge. But uh, like, it's interesting. We'll, we'll hop on, we'll drive around with Forza Horizon. So she can just drive around and, and see what's kind of up. And uh, and I think, I don't know if it's the last update, but there was like a whole donut media thing, yep. right? Like, and I'm like, mm-hmm. oh my God, this is, 
it's kind of wild to see that, you know, something that started like small, relatively speaking, right? Just a couple of guys going through some stuff. And then you have essentially not only like a, like a brand, there's whole sub segments within this brand. And then now it is, you know, made it into like the digital space beyond, right? You know, and it's kind of wild, like high car, low car is now in Forza, right? So you're like, it's All right, so cool. This is, this is interesting. I, I can't drift to save my life. So I've kind of stopped in that story path aspect of uh, the drifting. I'm like, well, we'll just do something else for now. But um, yeah, <laughs> so it's, I, I mean, I kind of have to ask, like, what is, you know, what is it kind of like with working for that, for, for Donut with essentially like a, I would say an organization now that has so many like multifacets that's still so young, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah, I they reached out a couple of years ago and they said, hey, we want to do an F1 podcast. Do you and your co-author Elizabeth want to be on it? And we were like, yeah, let's do it. Um, and so we went out there. We recorded our first episode. We had a great time. And now we record every single week at home. They bought me this microphone and they bought me the nice little pop filter so you can't hear my breath on the <laughs> microphone. Um, and we do a weekly podcast about Formula One and it's super fun. And we get to go out to the studio a couple of times a year. So we get to go meet everybody, participate in some YouTube videos, sure. do stuff like that. It's really cool to be folded into something that is already so big and so sure. successful. And I think what's cool about Donut is Donut has a huge audience and a huge grasp on car culture right now. And Donut is able to use that grasp on car culture to bring people like me and Elizabeth in and go, hey, look at these women who know a lot about racing sure. and are very, very knowledgeable and have written a book look at them, they belong here. And I think that is something that you've had in doses for, throughout the years in the car industry. You know, like Elizabeth and I both worked at Jalopnik. We had women at Jalopnik. We had women at other car blogs and stuff like that. But it is really nice to be in visual and audio format in front of so many people who have, you know, paid attention to the car industry for a long time. Because it's even things as little as my voice has a different tone than your voice. So maybe if I write something, somebody can go, oh yeah, like this woman's a good writer. But listening to my voice is different because I don't have a low male tone voice. And so to be able to put me and Elizabeth and people like that in front of people, to get them used to hearing women talk about cars and used to seeing women talk about cars, is very, very cool and I feel like really helps feed the next generation of car people because a lot of the people who listen to our podcast and watch Donut have young kids and there will be people who reach out because we have an email address for our podcast. We get tons of people who reach out and say, my daughter listens to the show and my daughter is a little kid and she thinks it's so cool that women get to talk about formula one because it is a it's a kind of medium where people of all ages can really consume it and think it's cool writing is kind of something you get into as you get older because i can write a story and a kid is not gonna fully follow it you know or they're not gonna know it's a woman or whatever it's a very tangible way to say hey look, women can do cool things in the automotive industry and you can too. And isn't this great? You know? And I think that's a really special thing. We hear so much from people who listen to the show who are like, I think it's so cool that y'all are on there. My daughter thinks it's so cool that y'all are on there. I even had one person like after our book published, send me and Elizabeth a photo of their child in the backseat, young daughter. She was maybe eight years old reading our book about formula one and that's crazy sure. to me that's wild that's so cool that kids get to read these books and listen to these shows and watch these youtube episodes with women in them sure. and get to go wow yay i can do that too and do you feel like because you you kind of brought up an interesting point with respect to like you know donuts like reach on car culture and things of that mm -hmm. nature there's a lot of talk obviously about like overall like production volumes going down you know uh, like i follow like kind of the pony car segment very very closely um of anything um you know and you look i want to say i'm trying to think what last year's 
you know, production volume was, but I want to say it was like, let's say 55,000 units for the Mustang mm -hmm. where like in, you know, 1966, it was like a million two, you know, and, um, and in general, while some aspects of brands are expanding and various other ones are contracting and there's, there's a lot of talk about just in general for various reasons, whether it's just the cost of vehicles and other like, you know, economic conditions, just, and even maybe just even when cities are laid out less desired for, you know, like private ownership of vehicles. But do you, do you feel like the, like the car culture, um, I would say like from the, like the tuners, hot rods, things of that nature, just in general will shrink. Or do you think it'll, from what you've seen now, maybe in some ways continue to grow because it's opening to whole new segments of both the world and just, you know, people in general. I think even if those segments shrink, it's, it's okay mm -hmm. because time moves on, life changes, you know, we have different ways we rely on traveling. We have different things we do, right? We go from gas powered cars to electric cars. We go from manuals to automatics. We have things change over time and enthusiasm and what enthusiasm looks like changes. And I think there will still be tuner cultures. There will still be a lot of those things and they will exist. Will they exist in a smaller way? Maybe. Will they exist in a bigger way? Maybe because maybe we rely less on cars and maybe we, we rely less on gas powered cars to just get us places and they become more fun. I think a big argument that a lot of people in the automotive industry make, including myself, is when we rely so much on cars for our day to day, it can take the fun out of them, right? And if you have to drive to work or you have to drive on a commute somewhere or you have to do something behind a car, that's not the car enthusiasm you like that. That's just not you. Car enthusiasm often comes on a racetrack or on some fun roads and stuff like that. I think a lot of people don't go, I'm about to drive four hours on the highway and I am so excited because I'm about to do that and I am not so excited. <laughs> do I love cars? Yes. Do I love driving them on the highway for four hours straight? No. Mm. And so these things can evolve. And also I feel like car enthusiasm can evolve to maybe people aren't around cars as much. Maybe people are in cities and they have public transit and things like that, but they still enjoy cars and they still enjoy motorsports and things like that. It doesn't have to be your everyday living and breathing for you to like it. It's also, it doesn't have to be something you particularly care about too much. Sure. I wrote a story recently about how NASCAR, vintage NASCAR fashion is super in right now. Like that is one of the fashion trends right now. And you'll see people everywhere who are wearing vintage NASCAR shirts and jackets and things like that. They don't know who's on the jacket. They, they don't know whose jacket it is. And that's okay. I talked to one person, they're a musician. Their name is Flash, very good musician. I listened to all of their music and I was like, wow, okay, I'm a fan. I'm gonna listen to all this for a long time. Interviewed Flash for this ESPN story about NASCAR fashion. And they were like, yeah, I just like the way it looks. I don't know whose jacket it is. I don't know what it is. But the more I wear it and the more connected I get to it, the more I'm like, I kind of want to go see a NASCAR race. And Flash said they tried to go to a NASCAR race for their birthday last year, but ended up like their friend group got COVID or something like that. So they ended up not going. But these little, little slivers of enthusiasm can turn into big enthusiasm. And I think that's really cool. And I think the more car culture and the enjoyment of cars and motorsports is just weaved into everyday society, whether or not people know a lot about sure. it is helpful and it's cool and it's very vibrant and interesting. And, you know, someone doesn't have to be able to name the past 20 Sprint Cup, not Sprint Cup, it's not the Sprint Cup, it hasn't been that for a long time the past 20 NASCAR Cup Series champions, they don't have to be able to name those people to be able to be like, yeah, I like this jacket and I'm going to wear it. You know, it's it's cool. There are different levels of everything. And I think even as society changes and these cultures change, they'll still be very interesting and very cool to be a part of. So just for my own edification, does does NASCAR fashion stop at like a race team jacket or is there is there more to it than that? No, so. there, there's a lot to it. I mean, um, 
people wear the jackets, people wear the vintage shirts, people try to find really weird vintage shirts. And I see people on planes, I see people everywhere wearing these vintage shirts. And the thing is back in the day, there was a lot of creative license with NASCAR apparel. These days, a lot of the apparel is templated. So if I buy, I don't know if this is templated or not. This is a Tyler Reddick shirt. I I think it's templated, but this shirt, if it is templated, has Tyler Reddick's name on it, but change a couple of the colors and we'll put Kyle Larson's name on it sure. and sell it to the next person, right? Back in the day, there was personalized design and styling and it was so cool. And there is a lot of that today. I mean, I've talked to a lot of the designers today. Ryan Williams is a designer for Junior Motorsports, which is an Xfinity series team. Very good designer, incredible shirts. I bought some the other day. I talked to Harris Liu and Emily Butler. They're also designers. They are so good and they focus on that vintage fashion style, right? And I buy a lot of their stuff because it's interesting. It's different. It's not templated. I, the other day, bought a vintage Bill Elliott jacket that had a picture of Bill Elliott's face on the front of the jacket and I thought it was hilarious. So I bought it. It's just, these things are like interesting and weird and it's not templated and people like when things feel unique and they feel like their own thing and they feel like people put effort into them, not just switching a couple of the colors. No, it's a, I think it's an interesting point. And I I mean, the the reason I asked the question, if if you think Mm -hmm. it'll expand, I mean, I don't, I don't have like a great, you know, finger currently, you know, on that, that pulse. Uh, maybe in a couple of years or maybe when I get back out to like the Woodward scene and, and stuff like that mm-hmm. um, and, and really kind of see what's out there. It's, it's been a few years. Um, so, but I, I, I almost like, I always felt that like when you saw some of these like either ultra high efficient vehicles and, and things like that being built, that those were enablers for all the fun cars. Right. You know, and a lot of people are like, Oh, mm-hmm. I can't believe this is happening or that. I'm like, well, you know, aside from like cafe standards and things like that, like there's a balance to all this. You have to have vehicles that have profit centers, you know, that to, uh, to keep things kind of afloat. There's vehicles that are sold, you know, at a loss for various reasons, oftentimes for like emissions compliance and things of that nature. And then, but you know, some of these things like, you know, pay the bills, right. For, for these other vehicles. And I don't know, that's as much as I'm like kind of worried as like a, you know, an automotive enthusiast. Um, I kind of feel like if anything, we'll see maybe a swing in some ways the opposite way. Even if you're not driving a car every day, you know, in some ways that frees up time or money to work on something that you that you like, that you're passionate about. Um, I feel like people are very focused on doomsday and very focused on, oh my goodness, automakers make so many SUVs. My counter to that is the Mazda Miata still exists. Sure. Like in its original form, in the... 50-50 weight balance, 2,400-pound vehicle with a manual transmission. That thing still exists. The, the Lexus LC500, they don't sell any of those. Nobody buys that car. That car still exists, and it's really, really good. The Cadillac, the the V cars, they, they've had mm. so many names, but now they're at the CT4 and CT5V Blackwing. In what world... Does a CT5 V Blackwing or a CT4 V Blackwing exist for the mass market? Sure. They're literally catering to us. And right. you could say, oh my goodness, we're losing all the good cars. No, you're lucky you still have these cars. <laughs> like they're not big sellers and you're still getting them. And that is so cool to me. Well, I think when when you mentioned the uh the guilty pleasure of the the LC five hundred, I wasn't sure if I was gonna bring it up, oh, but because uh, there's not many car. of them. There's not oh. But uh, for a customer, I did a slow tear down of one, so uh, <laughs> slowly and systematically tore it apart. And uh, uh, it's a very nice car. I mean, uh, yeah. fortunately, it was, I mean, or depending on how you look at it, uh, it was the hybrid version. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't mm-hmm. the V8 with the manual. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was an interesting car. You know, they were, that particular customer was interested from a lot of styling aspects, from stamping feasibility. You know, they liked the, like the, and it's funny because... Uh, Without going into too much details, they kind of champion some of that Coke bottle shape, you know, in some of these mm-hmm. cars. But they were mm-hmm. just looking at some of the dramatic styling aspects of the the LC five hundred as essentially a, a more attainable version of a, like the LFA, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, it's interesting. Very small weld flanges in some areas. I want to say, like, if I remember off the top of my head, the trunk is like nine millimeters, which is crazy. Yeah, I tried right? to close so, it on myself, and I could not get in there. No. Uh, so, um, 
Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a cool car. Heavy, very heavy. I'm surprised because there's very you know, heavy car. Um, you know, and a lot you can of get the optional it, carbon fiber. You can get the carbon fiber on the roof, and you can get the carbon fiber everywhere. And I'm like, who does this help? The, the roof doesn't help. Like you this know. car is going to be so heavy regardless. It doesn't matter. Yeah, and. You know, if the, even in steel, right, you're probably talking about something that's like 0.8, you know, maybe mm-hmm. millimeters thick on top, probably even thinner than that for the roof. And then it just costs money to put composites on the roof, right? You know, I mean, it <laughs> saves some weight, but not not really. It looks cool. It's almost cooler to have a continuous look from like a composite hood, carbon all the way through or whatever you wanted mm-hmm. to do. Um, it is a very cool car. And I, I remember we were going through it and uh, like the taillights specifically have that like that depth of draw. They just... They go into infinity, right? And uh, the they're like, please don't show this to the product design guys because they're going to ask us to package this thing, and it's an absolute nightmare. And the first mm-hmm. thing they came down like, where are the taillights? You know, and they're like, mm, they're over there. Um, but it it was interesting. It was a cool car. I just I had uh, saw that you you were quite fond of it, and I, I want to say there's five thousand of them that they made, like at least that one year. I don't know if they're even in production still anymore. Uh, I just don't, I they don't build a lot stat, of them. I have the stat somewhere. They are still in production, and okay. I think the stat is they sell about twelve hundred a year. Um, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, don't quote me on that, but I think that's the stat. I think like a couple of years ago they sold twelve hundred and nineteen or something. Ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous sales numbers. I would buy that thing in a heartbeat. Sure. It's so cool. Um, but you know, I mean, it doesn't sell, it doesn't check my boxes as someone with a two car garage because it is a grand tour Sure. and I'm going to have a practical car and a sports car, not right. combined, but it works for a lot of people because that is such a cool car and it looks like a spaceship. I love it. Yeah. And I mean, I, like the automotive industry has ruined me. Like there was things mm-hmm. I just don't even think about, you know, before, you know, 10, 15 years ago, but when I'd get in a car now, I'm like, mm-hmm. if someone gets a new car, I look at all the gaps, I'm pressing, I'm pulling on things. I'm Always. Like, Ooh, it squeaks, you know? And, uh, and that's one thing I would argue just over the last 10 years, cars have gotten so good, like in general, like they have yeah, problems, they there's lots of recalls, you know, COVID was a hard time to build cars. Um, frankly, the fact that cars even get made in general is amazing. Um, when you look at like the feet of engineering logistics and just everything behind them. But, um, I will say that like the LC 500, is like very well built on the inside. Um, you know, like the grab handles, those are all like cast magnesium and wrapped. Mm-hmm. Just, you grab them and you just pull and it makes no noise. And mm-hmm. same thing with the interior, despite the fact that the interior panels have, are literally just like all Phillips head screws. And you're like, oh, like for us, it's a, it's a nightmare. If I would have showed mm-hmm. it to Andy, he probably would have like instantly died, you know, um, with how many bolts were in it. But I get it. It, it may not be worth the tooling to do heat staking for all that. Because mm-hmm. if you look at the production line, it's like white coats and, you know, <laughs> it's like surgery, you know. And yes. So um, it's, it's pretty impressive to see like how, where they're built and how they're built. Um, a lot of gingerly love, you know, assembling them. So, um, yeah, I wasn't sure if I was going to mention it because I knew it had like a special place in your heart and we – slowly and systematically like dismantled it that would be rough for me that, yeah. would, that would be a rough thing for me to see yeah and after they like test the body uh, for modal testing then we started cutting up like pieces of it to see what, oh. all, all the layering like one whole side of it just peeled off and um oh. just to see how it was built you know and Oof. uh so yeah it hurt a lot of the like the guys that were real into jdm stuff when they came down and they were like mm, this isn't right they didn't no. they did not build a lot of these cars you should, no, we shouldn't be doing this so. no put it back put it back please i'm begging <laughs> yeah because they really do there are not a lot of those cars no. and i think the most interesting thing is um i think doug mentioned this when i talked about the lc 500 on doug demiro's channel he was like even cooler is going to be the lc 500 without the trackpad because lexus is trackpad existed for a long time and as much as automakers want to sell track pads um people feel iffy about track pads sure. and there will be very few lc500s without track pads yeah i mean it's i mean that's interesting right like you know with the like what is it, the model 3 highland no stocks and i was like mm-hmm. oh i like everything about it besides mm-hmm. i get it i mean but I can do the shifter on the, the you know, the, the center console. That's fine. I, you know, mm-hmm. no problem with the Model S. Uh, it's a little mm-hmm. weird, but you just got to get used to it. I, I'm not sure I can get used to the no stock thing. It's it's interesting to see some of these human to machine interface decisions that are being being made. And I, I'm all for change. And when you look at like just where things are going in general, there's 
in general, less buttons. A lot of interfaces are, you know, touchscreen and, and, you know, simplified and, you know, just kind of layers to them. And, and there's a lot to be said, like for us, we've, we were advocating for some of that stuff for, for years. You know, when you would look at um, like some of the bill material costs for stuff, like old timey vehicles at this point, but, you know, it'd be like engine, transmission, body, Harman Kardon stereo, you know, it's like the fifth line item for how much money was, was in this thing. And you're like, yeah, do we, do we really pay this much for this? And you're like, you know, every bit of that. And they want more money next year, you know? Yeah. And you know, that was one of the things we were advocating, like, oh, everyone, everyone has these cell phones, right? So can we not like leverage some of that stuff and get some of that content just in a screen that is an interface and, and whatnot. But it's, it's interesting seeing how various OEMs have reacted to the Tesla tablet, you know, and um, its presence, which seems mm-hmm. to be like over overwhelming, you know, in some ways, right? Um, I drove a Sequoia the other day that okay. had a tablet the size of my laptop. I have a 13 inch MacBook. Yeah. And I held up the MacBook to the tablet. And it was the same, same size. size. It might have been a MacBook. The Mac. It honestly <laughs> might have been a MacBook. It was I liked it. It was very crisp. It was very easy to see. It was a great screen. It was just the size of my MacBook. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I, I think that's, un- I don't want to say unfortunate. Um, I think it's definitely a, a trend and a, a facet that will stay. You know, the screen size has only gotten sharper, better, mm-hmm. you know, 4K. I mean, we just saw the, the BMW i7 and, I mean, not for me, but uh, if I had that kind of money I didn't know what to do with, Maybe, you know, it was definitely an experience to drive around in and more specifically be driven in, you know. Yes. It's, it's very nice. Um, and the, mm-hmm. everything about the kind of like the drive modes and the um, and how that kind of corresponds with like the visual cues and all the screens is kind of impressive. I thought it was, mm-hmm. again, it's not my cup of tea. I'd rather have like a like an E90 M3, but um, Fair. I, I did think it was cool, you know, it was an mm-hmm. vehicle. But um, I, th- I think you can appreciate both. No, for sure. For sure. Um, and you know, kind of to your original point of like the kind of the cars going away, I, I would argue this is like peak besides like the sixties, like late sixties, very, very early seventies. This is almost like peak time for cars. I mean, and I, you know, coming from like kind of working on cars when I was younger and, and, and building various things. And then now coming into the car industry, like I almost, I don't want to say I don't like aftermarket stuff. I just, um very leery when you look at like how much stuff when you see like oh i'm just gonna like swap these control arms these big box steel things you know that could be bad in a crash you know mm-hmm. or do you really think this person is like are these welds certified they just don't fly apart later or something like that so it's 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 changed my i'm definitely i've always been an oe plus as far as aesthetics mm-hmm. for cars and i'm definitely now like an oe plus for car modifications you know mm-hmm. uh, as far as uh that aspect but um i don't know i think it's like when you just look at the plethora of vehicles that are just out there, um, I think it's it's arguably like the highest point of cars that have kind of ever existed. Uh, you also have things like the Ford Bronco. When mm-hmm. Ford actually, when the Bronco debuted, debuted a bunch of Ford aftermarket parts. Like they were aftermarket parts, but they were Bronco parts. So if you wanted to customize it, you didn't have to one, wait for the aftermarket or two, be like, oh, I guess I should do some research on this. They were all parts that were made to be part of that car. Yeah. I mean, it's, that was an interesting launch of a vehicle. It was was tough for them, like with the supplier issues and all that stuff. But I, um, it's funny when uh, like Scott Hoffman was getting his master's, he was doing a like a, a presentation. So we built this thing about the new Bronco because there was rumors about it and stuff like that and, and like what it would be. And and one of the big things I said is like, you know, in his presentation, they were like, African, you don't you don't steal your your competitor's flagpole. You don't go after that aspect, right? So the Jeep is slow speed, you know, technical off-roading. And then, you know, you kind of look at like Ford's like off-roading heritage, it's always been speed and it's always been, you know, kind of that aspect, even the, the Bronco when it was solid axle and, and essentially just like a stamped box, but there's pretty much no, no way they would ever put a solid axle in it. It doesn't make any sense from like the platform that it was being built off of, uh, from a cost perspective and just what you get from like a ride and drive perspective. And it was one of the things, and it's, it's almost like guaranteed now, like I drive around and I see more Broncos than I see Wranglers and it's, we kind of joked about it. I was like, I, 
I think when you look at the volume, you're going to see a ton of women switch over to it. I have a lot of respect for women that drive Jeeps because it's like, as far as like ride driving, it's a terrible vehicle. Like it's just the worst, you know? Um, I like them. They're awesome. Eventually I'll get one. Um, but I knew that like when you would see this kind of like this shift because it, it doesn't necessarily drive well on the street. And you may not be able, you may, you may not be using the full off-road capability where you really want to disconnect the sway bars and have the rigidity of that. And I would argue the Bronco gives you like probably an 80% solution to most off-road obstacles anyway, and can drive through many off-road things significantly faster than a Jeep ever could, and then drives on a road significantly better. And you're seeing like this kind of whole migration to people who are switching Broncos, you know? And that's one thing that I've noticed is like, I think that it's going to do really, really well with like, like the female demographic, because I think it's a better vehicle for that in some ways, because at least in our area, People want like that adventure vehicle, but they don't necessarily need that like nth degree of the solid axle and they've already kind of switched. It's kind of been interesting for me to see like how it's come back, where it went and the problems it's had, but yet are the successes that it's had as well. So I think you also have to consider like in the public eye and in the public connotation, Jeeps have been around forever. forever. Like a Wrangler is just a, ra a Wrangler, right? Like you see them and to a normal person, a new Wrangler doesn't look particularly new. <laughs> like It looks the same as it's always looked. So to a normal person, you see a Bronco, which hasn't been on the market in, what, 25 years or something like that. You see a Bronco and you're like, oh, that's way different. That's interesting. And so it's that, but it's also just like, it's something different. It looks new. It's I can talk about it being new. And honestly, the Bronco looks great i think i think it looks really cool i think people look adventurous you know without having that jeep connotation like oh i'm just a jeep person you know if you're thinking about the general public the general public wants to look adventurous and interesting but they want to look like that in a different way and i think sure. the bronco also gives them that yeah i mean aesthetically the only thing i don't really like about it is the round wheel wells you mm -hmm. know i get why they did it Ford trucks have round wheel wells and you know it's yeah. kind of like off that platform <clears throat> and that philosophy but um they kind of fix up the heritage edition. You can kind of get the the boxed out fender flares, but um, Fair. yeah, it, I don't know. It's been at least around me. It's been an interesting case study in the kind of greater Detroit metro area to see the transition of vehicles over, where you'd see households that would have both, right? And they had a Wrangler for a long time, and then you know someone got a Bronco, and then they're both there for a little while, and then the, the Wrangler went away, you know. And I'm like, hmm, interesting, you know, because it is like a staple. Like, you know, I'm from Pennsylvania originally, and we don't call them like off-roading trails. You just call them Jeep trails, you know, here mm -hmm. in Michigan, a lot of two tracks is kind of what they talk with some of that stuff. But, um, it just kind of, you know, throughout the world, there's whole vehicle segments that are just referred to or vehicle types. They're like, that's a Jeep. It's not, mm -hmm. you know, but they just call it's them not. Jeeps, you know, that's just how permanent, you know, in automotive like history it is. I think besides like Jeep, Mustang, Corvette, pickup truck, that's like the most American vehicles like on the planet, like the demographics. So, right. so, um, and if you don't like them, you could argue in every way that you're like un-American. Like, oh, you, what, you don't like the Mustang? Well, all right. You know, you Ooh. don't like a Jeep? Mm, all right. You know. No, fair. Totally yeah, fair. Won a world war, you know. So, um, <laughs> no, it's it's pretty interesting. So, um, I know we kind of went on like a, a tangent with the – We started with the LC I love tangents. Yeah, yeah. So I love tangents. Don't worry. Um I, I did kind of want to like ask a similar question that mm -hmm. I asked about like the racing aspect for technology. So, um, you know, we don't do obviously like a lot of supercar stuff or anything like that here, but like, what do you think from that perspective? Like that's kind of in my mind, very similar to racing where you have these halo vehicles. And I mean like legitimate halo vehicles where they're, they're pushing the boundaries. If there is a, an existing architecture, they're tearing it up. You know, I think like the Mustang GTD like falls out of territory, right? Yes. Just big tear up, Multimatics building it, things of that nature. But like some of these, you know, supercar hybrids and things of that nature. I, you know, that's not something we do here. We try to get money out of vehicles, not put money into vehicles. But uh, I'm just kind of curious on your take on that. You know, I find that in order to drive a lot of cars to their potential, like a lot of cars to their potential, you have to be on a racetrack. Sure. You can't, you can't do it on the road. This is particularly true with supercars. Mm -hmm. It's, I mean... You take a Lamborghini Urus out, the SUV, you take it out on a road, it's fine. It's sure. completely unfaced. It literally could not care less, right? It doesn't matter 
it doesn't matter how good the road is. Like if you drive it well and also you're not getting arrested for driving it, right? You can't put it out of sorts. You, there's nothing you can do to challenge this car. And so I find that to properly evaluate cars like that, if you're going to review them or give your opinions on how they drive, you have to be on a racetrack. And you just often don't get that, unfortunately. You're often driving these cars on the road. And so like, I can tell you what it's like to drive them on the road, but I can't tell you what it's like to drive them at any sort of limit, whether it's my limit or their limit. And often it's going to be my limit, not their limit, because very few people can reach those cars limits. They're just good. The cars are so good. I drove the Rimats Nevera in October or something like that. Uh, the Rimats Nevera is a 2000 horsepower electric supercar for those who don't know. What a, what a flex. <laughs> what a car, right? Oh my goodness. Um, you can't, in the time you start to move your foot on the pedal, sure. it's already going 70 miles an hour. Right. You, your foot physically can't hit the floor fast enough to legally floor that car on the road. It's the most absurd thing I've ever seen. But also you're driving this car. It was raining when I drove this car and I was like, do you want me to like be careful, like not floor it? And they said, no, floor it. It doesn't matter. Sure. Like yeah. it, it will correct any little issue you may have. And I think that's very, very cool. These cars are so good. They're, these cars are better drivers than us, right? Also, there is the other side of that, which is these cars are better drivers than us, so we can forget how, how big of a deal driving is. You can forget how consequential it is to drive a car. I mean, if you get in a new car on a highway, it's so nice and so wonderful. I drove an Audi Q8 e-tron the other day on the highway. I was going 80 and it felt like I was going 45. And you can forget, like, I'm doing a big action here. Like, this is dangerous what I'm doing. It's easy to forget when the cars are good drivers. <laughs> so, <laughs> not to beat this top of the, like, so you said, like, you couldn't get them. You don't really, you don't see their full potential, right? No, like on the, never. But on the road, no. so do you feel like um, with some of these, like, performance EVs and, let's say, performance hybrids, do they lose anything in street driving? Or do you think they just become better? I... Don't know that they lose anything, mm -hmm. but I do think, and this is this is a thing I've said about the Kia EV6. So you okay. take a normal Kia EV6. I haven't driven a normal Kia EV6, but an EV6 GT is so fast it will break your neck. But ultimately, it's a party trick. And with EVs especially, you pay less for better range or more for worse range but more power, right? So you pay less to get better range. <laughs> so the EV6 is cheaper. The EV6 GT is more expensive and has less range. And ultimately, a car's acceleration, whatever, that's a party trick. You show people that one time, two times, whenever. You show people that for the first time and then it's over, right? And so if you're buying a car to own, you have to consider what are my priorities? Are my priorities to have fun all the time or are my priorities to have a party trick? Me, am I going to pick a party trick vehicle over a Mazda Miata? Probably not because if I'm on the road, if budget matters, if the money matters, I would rather have a vehicle I enjoy all the time than a vehicle that's a party trick. So all right, this is Eric Monroe, producer chiming in. What is your daily driver then? We have a 2004 Mazda Speed Miata and another Ooh. 2004 Mazda Speed Miata. And then we also have a 2012 Hyundai Elantra. And we were going to buy a different car before the pandemic because that was my high school car. We were going to buy a different car before the pandemic. And then all the car prices shot up. And yep. we were like, you know what? AC blows cold in here. We can't say that for the two Miatas. <laughs> sure. So we're going to keep this guy. It, it holds luggage. It has AC. We're good. So right. like me, I'm about to drive four hours to Dallas. I'm taking the Elantra. My husband took one of the Miatas to work. Right. That's awesome. I have mm -hmm. a very crappy NA Miata, but I wish I liked MBs. I, I, there's so many better ones they're out so there, cute. especially up here. Uh, they're like little vipers. 
Yeah. But uh, if it doesn't have pop-ups, it's not for me. So for now, I'll Very probably get fair. another one at some point, but they're so expensive. They're coming down. Very fair. But uh, mm -hmm. uh, they're, that's kind of, but there's, it's funny. I think we've talked about it or joked about it. There's, I think three people have Miatas here and two of the three are like six foot three and over 215 pounds. So like when people see us get out of them, they're like, or if we drive the somewhere together. The people who drive Miatas know? are the so. people who can't fit in them. Yes. No one yeah. who can fit in a Miata drives a Miata. But uh, I'm highly selective about whether or not I like Miata people or not. They they, <laughs> they they seem to irritate me or I appreciate them. You know, I'll see mm -hmm. some that are slammed or you'll see constantly on the online, like, I crashed another one. I'm like, bro, this is why they're so expensive, you know? Yeah, stop crashing uh, them. Stop, you know, invest yeah. in tires, not Chinese coilovers, uh -huh. and uh, learn to drive and mm -hmm. stop crashing these cars. They're, they're not making any more NA Miatas. Uh, totally or agree. NBs, you know, it's, it's kind of a shame to see. I... I in general, I, I want to you know say thank you very much. I like I really appreciate the the time you took to talk with us, and um, you know it was a great time. Love doing it. Do it again if you ever want to. It's uh, absolutely it's interesting to see different me. sides of that. You know of of the mm -hmm. car world, right? And we have a mm -hmm. again a weird niche in it, and then uh, and then there's the other side of like receiving cars and getting to to like evaluate it from that perspective. So definitely, um, yeah. So yeah, no, thanks again. Again, I can't thank you enough. It was a lot of fun. So. Maybe until next time, thank and we'll you. go from there. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right, thanks. Take care.